Good intentions. When we say that phrase, it usually doesn't carry with it a good connotation. After all, it can imply, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't follow through very well with things. They are someone that might overpromise and underdeliver. I must admit that sometimes I struggle with that. Too many occasions I have looked into the disappointed eyes of my kids and said, I'm sorry, I know I told you I would have time to play. I know I told you that, that we could do that this afternoon, that we could go to the park or work on this project, but I have too much work today, I'm sorry, or something came up and I intended very much to do it, but I just can't. I had to say that very thing a few times this week. Maybe some of you parents know how painful that is to do that with your kids. It's something I'm working by God's grace to improve on, but sometimes I still struggle with it as a parent, as a husband, and even as a pastor. So it usually doesn't carry a positive connotation. It also doesn't uh, carry a positive connotation because the phrase can also mean even if you follow through and actually do something good, that it can end up bringing harm. Maybe that happens out of ignorance or just bad luck, but even if you tend, intend for something good to happen, you do it and, and it actually does more harm than good. It doesn't end well. Whatever definition comes to mind, the typical feeling is that good intentions are not very good at all. There's even a saying we have, right? The road to you know where is paved with good intentions. But I would like to contend this morning that there is a context where good intentions are very good. In fact, I would go as far to say that those who are citizens of the kingdom of God must practice good intentions. I came to this impression as I was reading through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 this week. If you weren't with us last Sabbath, we have started a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so last week we were kind of in the first half of Matthew chapter 5 and we looked at uh, the Beatitudes together and, and how we are blessed even if we are living in unlucky, unfortunate circumstances. And so we continue uh, that uh, where we left off in Matthew chapter 5, and we pick up here today in verse 17. And as I read from verse 17 through the end, uh, I started to get this impression that, you know, maybe there is a place, a time and place for good impressions. If you have your Bibles and you want to open to Matthew chapter 5, the text will also be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 17. Jesus' introduction to this whole section we're going to read. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others according, accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what a phrase for those people to hear that day, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The expression, do not think, that Jesus says, suggests that he is countering 
suspicion among the people that he is, in fact, attempting to set aside the law and the prophets, in other words, the entire Hebrew scriptures. With his ministry and his message that he's already proclaiming the good news to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near, it's at hand, it is in your midst. People must have been suspicious that maybe he's doing away with the revelation from before. But Jesus makes it clear, none of the commandments and teachings of the Old Testament scriptures are to be set aside. I'm not here to do away with the law and the prophets. I am here to fulfill it. And of course, we know that Jesus came to fulfill the the prophecies and the expectations of the coming Messiah, that he also fulfills some of the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king. But the context of the rest of Matthew chapter 5, I think also suggests that part of Christ's fulfillment work is helping us to have a more deeper and complete understanding of his word. To understand not just the letter, which Jesus reminds us the letter of the law is important. Don't do away with that. But to help us understand not just the letter, but also the good intentions behind his law and teachings. You see, in Jesus' day, the good intentions of God's law had been largely lost. The motives behind them, the principles that they stood upon, the religious leaders added so many new traditions and regulations that, uh, to God's laws and teachings that they became burdensome to everybody. And the intent of the laws got lost. And so Jesus comes and says, the letter of the law is important, but I'm going to help restore the good intentions behind it that seem to have gotten lost. Let me help you understand that. And so he gives these six examples to illustrate. He begins each of them by saying, you have heard it said, but I say. And we're going to go through each of them together. I think it's, we're not going to be able to go in detail to each and every one. You could do a whole sermon just on each of those individually. We're going to look at them collectively together and kind of get this idea that Jesus is trying to uh, restore the the good intentions of his teachings and law. So verse 21, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that if anyone is angry with their brother or sister, there will be judgment. And if anyone calls them raka or fool, they will be judged also. If someone has done something against you, leave your sacrifice on the altar and go reconcile with them. Settle matters with your adversary who is taking you to court quickly. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny you can see what Jesus is getting at here, right? He is reminding them of the intent of that law, to value the life and well-being of others. Yeah, we don't want to kill people, but we also want to value their well-being. And the culture of that day, much like in our culture today, unresolved anger towards someone showed that you did not value their life. Maybe even more so, name-calling back then added to this idea. Your name was significant in those days. It represented not just your family identity, but also your character, even your calling. Raka, that word that Jesus says there, basically means empty-headed. 
fool. That word for fool in the Greek is where we get our word for moron. Calling someone that would strip away their very identity and replace it with what you've called them. And then the last two uh, parts of that verse that Jesus, or that section that Jesus is talking about, takes the idea, the principle of valuing life even further. If someone has done something, uh, or if you have done something against them, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and reconcile first. And don't miss the fact that he is speaking to people in Galilee. If you wanted to go do a sacrifice, you had to go all the way to Jerusalem, which was 70 miles away. So you get this picture that Jesus is saying about how much effort he wants us to have to reconcile with each other. If you're there in Jerusalem making a sacrifice and you remember that, that you're not right with somebody, you've got to leave that and go all the way back and take care of it first and settle matters with each other quickly. It will be good for you to do that. Family, I think it would be safe to assume that None of us in this room have committed murder. I guess I don't know for sure, but I assume that we have all kept the letter of that law. But maybe we've been guilty of murdering someone's value by harboring anger or assigning demeaning names or terms or murdering a relationship by refusing to reconcile or settling matters quickly. I know that there's extreme circumstances where it's healthy to have some separation, but in general, God intends for his people to value the life and well-being of others, to reconcile and nurture relationships. So now we move to the second one. Verse 27, Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here Jesus is again moving beyond the surface of the law, trying to get to the level of the heart, the level of the good intentions. And I believe one of the good intentions he is trying to restore here is the value of that oneness in a marriage relationship. That's the way Bible describes, the Bible describes the union between a husband and a wife, this intimate oneness, deep connection they are no longer two but one flesh and God wants those who are married to value and preserve and enjoy that oneness and that oneness is tarnished is broken of course through the physical act of adultery but Jesus says it is also tarnished it is also broken when we lust in the level of the heart You know, when you think about it, ultimately the deepest level in which we experience that oneness with a spouse is at the level of the heart. So lusting in our hearts defiles that oneness at its deepest level where it matters the most. You know, I think we live in a day and age where I at least assume it is even more of a struggle to practice what Jesus preached than during the day that he preached it. And we have access to things so easily. 
which is why it is so important to practice the principle in which he gives here, the metaphor of gouging out the eye, cutting off the hand. In other words, put yourself in situations to protect and nurture and enjoy that gift of oneness. Maybe it involves limiting the kind of access you have to certain things, changing social habits, or having an accountability partner that you pray with. Whatever the course of action may be, the point is to be proactive, to celebrating, enjoying, and protecting that gift of oneness God has given. I think that's the intent, he said, that this law was giving. The next section comes, and he continues, I think, to build on that, to promote uh, the intent of protecting and enjoying the oneness in a marriage relationship. In verse 31, he said, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Jesus' day, the certificate of divorce was being grossly abused. Men were issuing divorces even if their wives would do things like spoil dinner. Part of what God intended when he allowed for divorce in the Old Testament times, because it was rampant in the surrounding nations, was to help protect the rights and the status of women. It kept a husband from divorcing without any cause, and it kept a woman's status honorable in the community. He made provisions for it, but that was largely its intent. God also didn't intend for marriage commitments to be taken lightly or to be broken. He hates when there are broken relationships. But this was not happening during Jesus' day and age. People were just using it willy-nilly, I'm just going to issue you a certificate of divorce. So he comes back and he reminds them that was not the intent. Divorce is to be the last resort when the sanctity of the union is defiled by marital unfaithfulness. I want you to value the oneness again. Then we move to the next. Verse 33, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it, is by God, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot, even, uh, you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You know, there are times where we read in the Old Testament that God himself guaranteed the fulfillment of a promise with an oath. He, he makes oaths in the Old Testament. In the same way, the Old Testament scriptures, we read that it, a person was permitted to swear by the name of God to substantiate an important affirmation or, or promise. But what ended up happening by the time we get to Jesus' day when he was doing his ministry on this earth there was a trend where people would only consider oaths that invoke the name of the Lord as binding. If a person wasn't really serious about an oath, they could swear by less sacred things, like I swear by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. 
You know, but it wasn't until that you, you swore by God that people took it seriously. I don't know if any of you had the same situation when you were kids, but I can remember just going outside to play in my neighborhood, and, and a kid uh, who was my neighbor would tell me a secret, and they said, promise me you'll never tell the secret. And I'd be like, okay, sure, I'll promise. Swear, okay, I swear. Swear on a stack of Bibles. Swear to God, you know, that you're, you won't tell anybody. Okay, I, yeah. That's the way it was back then. Nobody would take it seriously unless you invoked the name of the Lord with it. But of course, the intent God had with oaths when he first introduced them was for his people to learn how to be truthful, honorable. His intent was for his people to have integrity, and they had lost that intent. Moving on to the next, verse 38. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In some societies, surrounding nations, in the Old Testament times, punishment was handed out often without regard for individual cases. In other words, the penalty that people would receive would far, out, would far exceed their crime. So the eye for an eye and tooth for the tooth principle was established as a check to inappropriate punishment. That's what its original intent was for. You follow me? So some people were being punished in ways that they didn't deserve at all. And so this was a way in which justice could be applied more fairly. Most commentators doubt that it was intended to be applied literally in every case, but it was a graphic reminder, metaphor, to promote justice as fairly as possible. In addition, the punishments were not to be administered by those who were harmed. They left that up to the Lord or to the religious leaders to administer that justice. In fact, that famous text that Jesus is going to allude to in the next section, love your neighbor as yourself, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, I have the text for you here, I believe. The preamble to that is, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any mo- anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. In Jesus' day and age, people were using this law, the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, as justification to take revenge into their own hands. They had lost its intent. So Jesus comes along and he reminds them, revenge is not what you are to be doing. You are to find ways to love. That's what I have called you to do. Don't return an insult with an insult. That's really what slapping on the cheek represented back then. Not just physical harm, but public insult. Don't return insult with insult. Turn the other cheek. Find ways to help and to serve those who have even wronged you. Then we get to the last section, verse 43. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil, and he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It feels like there is a progression, doesn't there? As we have moved through each of these examples Jesus has has given, culminating here with this call to love not just our neighbor, not just those that love you back, but our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. When God calls his people to love, he intends them to do it extravagantly, beyond the bare minimum, to love those who don't deserve it. For that is the kind of love he gives to us. So, of course, he would intend for his followers to do the same. So family, after going through all that, I hope it's very clear that the appeal for you and I today is to simply follow God, follow his ways, follow his teachings at the level of good intentions. Be mindful of the motive, the reason, the principles contained in what he's asked us to do. Be faithful beyond the external level, but at the level where it really matters, the level of your heart. However, I feel like that cannot be the only appeal I leave you with today. Because I wonder if some of you out there are feeling a similar feeling that I had this week as I was studying through all this. It's a feeling of maybe anxiousness, a little overwhelmed, maybe nervous. Those were my feelings this week because I kept thinking as I was studying this, Lord, I get it. I know I'm supposed to live for you on this level, the level of good intentions, the level of the heart. But Lord, even there, I have failed you many times. In fact, when I think about it, I do a decent job of mostly keeping the external level, the letter of the law. But I guess even the Pharisees did that well, so I shouldn't be too proud about that. But to live for you at the level of good intentions, at the level of the heart, Lord, that's a whole nother ball game. I don't think I can do that. If you are having a similar feeling welling up in your heart, I think we need to be reminded of something here. That living at the level of good intentions can only happen because of what we sang at the very beginning of the service because of the amazing grace of God. A text I constantly go back to time and time again, I encourage you to do it too, is the one that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He said, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect, No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace is the key to it all. You see, good intentions operates at the level of the heart. It's clear right after everything that we've we've read. 
Coincidentally, God's grace also operates at the level of the heart. And when you accept the grace of God in your life, he doesn't just forgive you, he gives you a new heart. God told his people in Ezekiel, I will put a new heart, a new spirit within you. That's what David asked, created me a clean heart, a right spirit. His grace gives us what you might call a spiritual heart transplant. Tara Storch understands this miracle as much as anyone can. In the spring of 2010, a skiing accident took the life of her 13-year-old daughter, Taylor. What followed for Tara and her husband, Todd, was every parent's worst nightmare, a funeral, a burial, a flood of questions and tears. Tara and Todd eventually decided to donate their daughter's organs to needy patients. Few people needed a heart more than Patricia Winters. Her heart had begun to fail five years earlier, leaving her too weak to do much more than sleep. But along came the opportunity for Tara's heart to be given to Patricia, and it gave her new life. Tara, sorry, Taylor's heart. Tara is the mother. Tara, the mother of Taylor, whose heart was given, had only one request of Patricia. She asked if she could come visit and listen to the heartbeat. She and Todd flew to Dallas, from Dallas to Phoenix because, of course, Patricia agreed and went to her home. And when they arrived, the two mothers embraced for a long time, and then Patricia offered Tara and Todd the stethoscope. As they listened to the healthy rhythm of that heartbeat, whose heart did they hear? Did they not hear the still beating heart of their daughter. It indwells in a different body, but the heart is the heart of their child. And when our Heavenly Father listens to the heartbeat of those who have given theirs to Him, does He not hear the rhythm of the beating heart of His Son, Jesus? Paul says in Galatians, I, it is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. That story about Tara and Todd and their daughter, Taylor, from one of Max Lucado's books. And I want to read to you what he says at the conclusion of telling that story. He says this, Grace is God as heart surgeon, cracking open your chest, removing your heart, poisoned as it is with pride and pain, and replacing it with his own. Rather than tell you to change, he creates the change. Do you clean up so he can accept you? No, he accepts you and begins cleaning you up. His dream isn't just to get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you. What a difference this makes. Grace makes all the difference. So my second appeal, which has to be our primary focus today, is to give your heart to Jesus so he can give you a new one. His. It's the only way that we can start living at the level of good intentions. People say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think it might be just the opposite. It must be because the level of good intentions operates at the same level at which God's grace operates. 
and the road to heaven is absolutely paved with grace. So maybe good intentions aren't so bad after all. Lord, that is our prayer, to invite you to reign in us. Give us that spiritual transplant by the power of your grace, spiritual heart transplant, Lord, and reign in us so that we can go out and live, not just following the letter of your law, but even its good intentions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.